turn to 1 John, 1 John 3, look at 11 through 15 this morning. Let's pray. Father, may your word be a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By your Holy Spirit, we pray, lead us that we may turn neither to the right nor to the left. May we remain steadfast in the Lord Jesus, abiding in him and the love of the brothers to the very last day. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John 3, 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is God's word. We're coming into this section on uh, love in First John. He's touched on love already. Uh, in this passage, what I've noticed is that preachers tend to kind of focus on the, the, the love command as an exhortation really to love better in the church. Um, and this is certainly a worthwhile message and implicit in the passage, but I think explicitly the issue on hand for, for John is not on whether we love well in the church or how to go about loving in the church. I think you'll get into that, Um, but on the question of who loves or who does love. In other words, I believe the center of this passage is the exhortation, do not be surprised when the world hates you. John here, he's categorizing all those people who hate God's people, including those who profess to be God's people, under one heading, the world. And reading existentially, as we talked about in Sunday school a few weeks ago, um, reading, putting yourself in the shoes of the writer and the hearers of Scripture, I try to think about what these people must be dealing with, uh, what they've been feeling. If there's teachers in the community who are saying something different from the gospel that was preached to them by John and by others that they heard initially and in some sense had left the community of the saints and who were urging people to to join with them, to come to this side of things. And in some sense, perhaps despising or, or ostracizing or belittling those who would not come, you can imagine what that must feel like, the sense of confusion. Who do I follow? Who do I listen to? And it would also be very painful Uh, Why are they doing this to me? And really, this passage just continues in the same vein from 
last week what John has been doing. It's an encouragement. This whole section is an exhortation to abide. We're still in the abide section of 1 John. To remain, to live in Christ. And also what John is doing in this section is marking out those who do not abide in Christ. Those who cause division and dissension within the church to inform the saints to, to be wary of them and to not follow them. But I don't have an outline per se this morning. Um, I was telling Nick, sometimes I think I'm Superman. I'm not. I had too much on my plate this week. So I hope it's not a case of, of mist in the pulpit, fog in the pew this morning. But um, we're going to walk our way through these verses, verse by verse. And we'll, we'll actually go back to verse 10, if you have your Bibles, um, and begin with verse 10. In verse 10, John had said, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And we talked about that last week, that righteousness is an evidence of our sonship to God. And then he says, uh, Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's what he's talking about today is that Love of the brethren, love of Christians is an evidence that we are indeed born again. So we have this sort of a a paternity trial with evidence. And on the preponderance of evidence, is it apparent that those who practice righteousness are the sons of God and those who are the sons of the devil? So too are those who do not love the brothers. brothers. He says those people are sons of the devil. So John has two columns. In one column are those who do not love the brothers. And in the other column are those who are the children of God, who do love the brothers. And he's not saying, and we always have to reiterate this, that by loving our brother, we can be moved from column A to column B. In fact, we know it's not possible to love the brethren in any substantive sense without having first been born of God. We have to have regenerate hearts before we can love God's people in the way that John's talking about here. It's not a question of merit, of earning one's way from column A to column B. For John, it's a matter of simple observation. Do we love the brethren or do we not? Immediately what we see on the surface of verse 10 is that John has a a very specific kind of love in mind here. He's not talking about a general love for humanity, although that's important. But he has in mind brotherly love. Love between Christians, people who claim to be Christians. Do you love Christians? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you commit to them thick or thin, or do you, if, if you do commit to them, if you do love them, then he says you can be confident. There's evidence that you are born of God. There is also this sort of scary category in this text, in, in verse 10, um, that there are people who love, who do not love their brother, their fellow Christian. 
and therefore are actually proved not to be born of God, which means their, their claim to kinship is false. They're not a real brother. They're a brother in an external sense only. In verse 11, he begins to explain why this is the case. Why the one who does not love his brother is bearing evidence that he's not born of God. And he's in fact a son of the devil. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. So that word for, because, this is why this is the case. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, love is part and parcel with the apostolic gospel. Uh, Love is not like an advanced course, level 400 class Christianity. Love is Christianity 101. It's part and parcel with the gospel. This is something they've heard from the very beginning. The Lord Jesus, he came, he died as a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins that we might enter into fellowship with God and through his blood, we have entered into this divine communion with God the Father and his Son and the Holy Spirit. And we've entered into that communion together, corporately. We've not come into God's presence just alone, him and I, one on one. But through faith in Jesus and our union with him, we're brought into a great assembly of brothers and sisters. We all share the same Father. And for John, the message of the gospel, this message is embraced by people. This is in, inseparably tied to this social, familial implication. I go back to the, the beginning of the book of First John every week um, because I see in those first four or five verses the whole book summed up. And these would be great verses to memorize. Those first four verses just say so much in just so few words. But in verse 3, remember what he said. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. So there's the message that you have heard from the beginning. Uh, We proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this fellowship is integral and and necessary part an implication of the gospel. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about love, is this fellowship, this divine communion. John, he's an apostle. He, he spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And I think if anyone could give uh, people something new, some, some piece of higher knowledge, something that could really wow them and set himself apart as a teacher superior to these false teachers that are coming in. Um, it's, it's him. He could do that. But what does he do? And what does John always do? He points over and over and over again to that old, old story, to the gospel that you've heard from the beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we're not going to find ourselves being shocked when the world hates us, and if we're not going to be shaken or disturbed by that, then this this first and most basic thing is something we must do is 
is be grounded in the message that we have heard from the beginning. The, the word of God. The gospel. And we'll look more at, at love next week as John gets into a more positive explanation and example and illustration of love next week. In this passage, John is providing us with a, it almost seems obvious, but a negative illustration of what love is or what love is not. It's almost obvious because it's don't hate. Who's going to go around saying hate people? But he says, don't hate. Don't be like Cain. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. It just feels like a bit of a jolting jump. Like, well, who's talking about murder here, John? No one's killing anyone. But John is providing an illustration of what it means to hate one's own brother. Of course, it's a perfect illustration. D.A. Carson here helpfully says, The statement may be seen as little more than an inference from Genesis 3 and 4 taken together. The evil one who seduced his parents now seduces Cain. When John read Genesis 3 and 4, there were, of course, no chapter divisions, so he may well have seen the serpent's sway extending from Adam and Eve to Cain. So you see what he's saying is that Cain was influenced by the evil one, just like Adam and Eve were influenced. And this is a, a common belief, even um, in the Jewish tradition, um, that the devil was in influence in this first murder um, Interesting passage in, in a work called The Apocalypse of Abraham, which is written probably similar somewhere in the time frame that First John was written. Um, this is about Abraham receiving a vision or a, an apocalypse about the future. I mean, it says, And I shall tell you what, what and how it will be in the last days. Look now at everything in the picture. And I looked and saw there what had been in the world before. And I saw, as it were, Adam and Eve with him and with them, the evil adversary and Cain, who acted lawlessly. And remember, if you remember last week, we talked about sin is lawlessness. Um, so in this, uh, Cain, who acted lawlessly because of the adversary, attributing his influence to to the devil, and he murdered Abel, the perdition brought and given to him through the lawless one, through the devil. So this is a, a tradition and belief even in um, Jewish theology, but it's also biblical, I think. If we're following the story carefully of Adam and Eve, and as it progresses, um, after Adam and Eve fall, and, and God is defining the curses of the fall for man, woman, and serpent, he says, there will be a conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So the story, I think, of Cain and Abel is not not less than an immediate sort of uh, example of the severity of sin and the fall. But actually, it's more than that, that there is the beginning, the unfolding of the narrative of this great conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. These these two families that all of humanity falls into. And so John, he, he makes no hesitation 
Cain was of the evil one. He goes on, continuing in verse 12. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. I think it's helpful if we we can go back and read the story. If we want to turn back to Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Genesis 4, 1 through 8. You know it well. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. There, there's a lot that could be said there about that story, but... Well, I think what John is saying here, he, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous, that light exposes darkness and darkness does not like it. The world does not want to be exposed. Uh, Proverbs twenty nine twenty seven says, An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but the one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. 1 Peter 4, 4, also Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. We want you to come with us, to join us in sin. I feel blessed because I've been able to grow up in a Christian environment. and Maybe some of you didn't grow up in that environment and you may have experienced a, a a cooling of your relationships, or even a more heated disdain against you, especially as you grew in sanctification and piety when you became a Christian. It's like as if you were you were cutting off sin, you were also cutting off those people. Or I know in my own extended family, the opposite has taken place, and maybe this is probably more like what is happening in the church that John is writing to, is that people who are superficially pious and righteous, but did not have a genuine faith. And as they begin to drift away, those who have clung fast to that which we have heard from the beginning are labeled judgmental, pontificating, or self-righteous. This, this experience can be a jolt, or painful to say the least. But John reminds us then in verse 13... Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
I find it interesting that just over the course of a couple of verses, um, John has, and I believe intentionally but subtly, moved this whole column of, of supposed brothers who are, by their hatred of the brethren, that he's moved them into a more broad category of the world. Those people who claim to be brothers but aren't are actually members of the world. So for John, there aren't three categories. And I think Alistair Begg said about John in First John that if he were into photography, he would be into black and white photography. He, he deals in opposites. There's no middle ground for John here. An external claim to be a Christian is of no value if it's not supported by a genuine rebirth and a heart evidenced by love for the brethren. And it's important, I think, also to remember here and be reminded that biblically, hate does not just mean this emotion of loathing. We talked about that before. It has more to do with, with rejection in the Bible. Remember, they went out from us because they were not of us. We talked about that in, in the sermon on First um, John 2, 7 through 11, if you want to go back and, and re-listen to that. But we must remember this, this definition of hate because hate is not always going to manifest itself by something obvious. So, someone like Cain hitting us in the face with a rock trying to kill us. More often than not, particularly when it comes to apostasy, as in the case of this book, it's going to manifest itself more in a sense of walking away, of departure, of rejection. Notice here, too, how he addresses these people. The people he's writing to. He says, brothers. He calls them brothers. Do not be surprised, brothers. It's as if he's saying, dear ones, people who are of the family of God, together with me, um, remember, the spirit of Cain persists. The father of Cain still reigns in this world. The seed of the serpent are still st- striving against the seed of the woman. So why are you surprised that the world does not appreciate us? Why are you flabbergasted by this? I think we need to take this exhortation seriously. I think in this season of American history where our country appears to be drifting away from some some morals and principles which were derived from a more Christian worldview and where Christianity was more comfortable and more the norm, it seems like Christians are more and more just aghast that this is happening to us. And to be sure, to be clear, we ought to be disgusted or ashamed or frustrated by the sin that we see. And especially the, the apostasy and open immorality that we see in the Western church. And we should be disturbed by the way sound biblical Christians are being treated. But John says, don't be surprised. We should not take the posture of numb fatalism, but we should also not be so astonished or shocked that we were sent reeling in despair or confusion. I can't believe it. I just don't know anymore. I don't get it. 
Jesus explains that this phenomenon of hatred uh, will be a, a, a thing for Christians in John 15 and 16. Um, and this passage uh, in John 15 and 16 is also a reference to apostasy um, because the world in this context of John 14 and 15 is not just some secular state out there or something or some external hostile religion. The world is primarily apostate Jews who have rejected their Messiah and who hate Christians as a result. He says in 15, um, 18, John 15, uh, 18 through 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then hear what he says just a few verses later in the beginning of of chapter 16, one through four. I have said all these things to you, um, not to freak you out, not to shock you. He said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. It's good that you know this is going to happen to you. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have known the Father, not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them. There's a sense in which knowing and understanding this is going to happen equips and prepares us for what we will face. Jesus concludes this section in John, the Upper Room Discourse in in 1633 by saying, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I I think the second part of that verse usually gets the press, but did you notice what he said in the first part? I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In context, he's just told them that he's leaving them, that they're going to face the hatred of the world, and in fact that they are going to falter in their commitment to him. And this is supposed to give them peace. Peace, he says, in me. Tribulations, hatred of the world, our own weakness, as painful as they are, they serve as a reminder that our peace of mind and heart must never rest in comfort, in our own faithfulness, but our peace is in Him. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Next he turns again to a significant theme in First John, a a great reassurance for the Christian life. In verse 14, the words, we know. The Greek word, oidamen, occurs 16 times in the book of First John. This is important. We know. Because we, we all buy into lies and we're sent reeling by the lies we believe. And John, in his wisdom, says, don't be surprised. What do we know? What do we know for sure? What are the facts? In verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he sets up a contrast between believers and unbelievers. We know, brothers, 
where we stand. We have passed. We've been transferred from death to life. We are already in the eternal fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know? Because of the evidence that we love the brother. You ever talk to somebody, experience yourself, talk to somebody about assurance of salvation? This might have come up. Uh, I'm worried, but I'm not really saved. Well, a good question to ask is, do you care about the people at your church? Do you desire to be with the people of God? Are you committed to to them, thick or thin? Do you have a kinship with them? This week I I stayed with two families that I've never met before. And I met a bunch of people I've never met this before. And yet, every brother and sister I met, I was aware of an abiding, transcendent, familial relationship. There's a trust you can find nowhere else. I stayed with one family, had two young daughters, and they said, here's the combo to our home. We're not home. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Do you love the brothers? Do you care about the people of God? And loving the brothers doesn't mean there won't be uh, frustrations or conflicts or disagreements, but love means that there will be an abiding commitment through those things. Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Patience. Bearing with one another. You have to put up with me. I have to put up with you. And if you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord Jesus has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, Paul's description of a loving church fellowship includes a lot about patience and bearing with and dealing with our sin in the church. So he's not assuming that we're going to be perfect. But as Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Then the contrast here is that those who do not love the brother abide in death. They have not entered into an abiding union with Christ. By their hatred, by their disdain for the people of God, they show that they are persisting in the ways of spiritual death and spiritual darkness into which they were born in Adam. They have not been brought to newness of life, to new birth. This illustration is is weak, it only goes so far, but I kind of see John's tactic here a little bit like that of a father speaking to a young girl, maybe in her early teens, and she's experienced that, that pain of rejection. You know, young teenage girls can be nasty, Um, and it's almost as if the father who's been through this himself, who sees the bigger picture, he can say, I know it hurts now, but you know those girls were never really your friends. 
They're now just showing you their true colors. And look at how they're acting. They never had your best interest in mind. You're, you're better off without them. That's kind of what I see John saying it here. Is yes, they've departed, but you're better off without them. They're showing their true colors. They don't love the brethren. But John warns us against surprise in this passage for a reason. There's a danger of surprise. He says, just think about it for a moment. We know who we are. We know whom we love. We know by whom we are loved. And we know we have been transferred to a new life and a rich fellowship with God. And those people you thought were with you, who went out from you, they're now showing their true colors. And he concludes this, this section, this uh, explanation of love and hate on the negative side in verse 15 with a, really another appeal to what we know, what we already know. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Sometimes in 1 John when he says you know, it seems like he's saying that because his, his audience has read the Gospel of John. And in fact, scholars believe that maybe they did have access to the book of, of John, the Gospel of John. Um, either way, it's clear they're pretty familiar with the apostolic teaching, the message they've heard from the beginning. And here it seems like he's assuming familiarity with both material from the Gospels, the other Gospels, and his Gospel. So, uh, first, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the obvious place in Matthew 5, um, 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. The point Jesus is making there is not that sin and hatred of your brother are the same sin or the same level of sin. It's much worse to, to kill your brother by cracking him over the head with a rock than it is to despise him for a moment. But he's saying they're the same sin. You're breaking the same commandment and they're worthy both of hell. Jesus also says then in John, John 8, 42... Uh, through 45, talking to the Jews, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Here again, this is the same paradigm that John has been working with. Are you a son of the father or are you son of the devil? If God were your father, then you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then John, John also says in Revelation 22 at the end, he reminds us that, that murderers, remember in verse 15, no murderer has eternal life abides in him. He reminds us of this truth. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter into the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexual immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. These are, these are serious words, and I realize this is a serious and, and painful passage to talk about. But no, no, notice what he says in Revelation there. He says, he doesn't say those who, who are perfect have a right to the tree of life. He says those who wash their robes that are filled with all those stains that he, he describes in the second half. The dogs, the sexually immoral and sorcerers and murderers. There are those who have those sins, but who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. And that's how we gain access to the tree of life. So we, of course, we, we know that the sin of murder is not the unforgivable sin. That's not what John is saying. We expect to see David, King David and Paul, the apostle, who were murderous men, and many people who are right now incarcerated for the sin of murder, to, to join us at, at the gates on the last day. But if someone is, is a killer, an un, unrepentant murderer, his identity is in complete contradiction to eternal life. And there is no life, John says, abiding in him. John's application here. And his train of thought should not be lost on him he, he, in this passage. He's saying, if anyone doesn't love the brothers, then he hates the brothers. There's not a middle ground. And if he hates the brothers, he is a murderer. Because hatred is murder. And then he, if he is, by definition, a murderer, then he is outside among the dogs and the sorcerers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We must remember that John is still here in this section, the broader section of abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. Don't flee Christ, but stay in Him. So as a believer, when you encounter hatred of the world, when, when you're exasperated by those who have rejected Christ and so divorced themselves from Him, and from his people, including you. But don't be surprised. They're showing their true colors. When your faith in humanity is shaken, why would we have faith in humanity? I don't quite get that phrase. Or even as it's shaken within the church. Man, this doesn't seem like it is the way it should be. Would never let your faith in Christ be shaken. Jesus said again, I have said these things to you that you, that in me you may have 